Okay, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 6. Now, I apologize, because last week, uh, after we finished chapter 5, I said something to the effect, all right, the moment you've all been waiting for is here. 29 weeks! It's taken us to get to chapter 6, right? I mean, chapter 6 to 19, that's what people think of when the book of Revelation is mentioned, right? And so here we go, and people are, oh, yeah, yeah. And after a few minutes, I look at the clock, and we're out of time. So I had to stop. I apologize. Uh, but let me just pick it up tonight by saying that in Revelation 6 through chapter 19, John records God pouring his wrath, his judgment out upon, out upon this wicked, Christ-rejecting, rebellious world. As we have said many times, this will be a worldwide judgment. God has poured judgments out on localities many times in the past. There has only been two worldwide judgments. Noah's judgment back 6,000 years ago, roughly, and the one coming that Revelation talks about, a worldwide seven-year judgment called the Tribulation Period. And as I said last time, this will be a period of tribulation the likes of which the people of this world have never seen nor at this point can even imagine. Nothing people have ever seen or read will be able to prepare them for what is about to come upon this planet as recorded in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. And so as we've been pointing out at the start of chapter 4, John is raptured into heaven where he spends chapters 4 and 5 describing what he sees. We've covered that in detail. In chapter 5, Jesus, pictured as a little lamb, takes the scroll out of the Father's right hand, which now brings us into chapter 6. Verse 1, Now I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals. Again, this takes us back to chapter 5, verse 1, which reads, John speaking, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll, written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. When you think of a scroll sealed with seven seals, don't think of a long piece of paper rolled up uh, as a scroll, and then sealed with seven seals lined up along the outer edge. I've seen artists depict the scroll that way. That is incorrect. As we've already pointed out, the word scroll is the Greek word biblios, the word we get our word book from. In fact, the Bible. I mean, the word Bible means book, the book of all books. But biblios, even though it's the word for book in Greek, it's not a book like we think of. It could be a scroll that is rolled up. That was the most common form of writing uh, back then. They would uh, write on sheets of parchment and then uh, sew them together as the, depending on the length of what you were writing, and it would be rolled up, right? It wasn't always the case, though. It could also be referring to a document that was folded flatly numerous times. Instead of rolling, they would fold some of these flat, and they would keep folding them until you had a kind of a flat book, but it was, uh, you know, something that was not really... Uh, a rolled-up document, but a common way to uh, write uh, and fold the document back then as well. 
the way these uh, scrolls were uh, opened and read was that you broke the first seal and then either unrolled or unfolded it and read that section. And you would keep reading that section until you came to the second seal, at which time you would break open that seal and you would keep unrolling or unfolding and read that section. You would continue to break seals and read the sections until you had finished reading the entire scroll. As we have already stated, this scroll is the title deed to the earth. Jesus having died to pay the price of redemption to take the world back from the control of Satan. We spent a lot of time on that, so we don't have to, to talk about it uh, more tonight. And now we see in chapter 6 how Jesus is beginning to take possession of what he has bought and paid for with his own blood. The price of redemption. You can read 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19. We were redeemed by, not with things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Remember, we said that after Jesus died, rose from the dead, and ascended back to his Father. We read in Psalm 110, a messianic psalm, verse 1, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So when Jesus ascended back to his Father, he sat at the Father's right hand, patiently waiting for the time when he could take possession of what he had bought and paid for. Well, as we come to Revelation 5, Jesus is no longer sitting. He's now standing. He now steps forward. For the time has come for him to take possession of what he has bought and paid for on Calvary's cross. But before he can take possession of the earth, there is a little unfinished business that has to be taken care of first. He has to dispossess the earth of the usurpers. Satan, the Antichrist, and his followers, which is what chapters 6 through 19 are all about. As Jesus takes the scroll out of the Father's right hand and breaks the first seal, a judgment is brought to the earth. He then unrolls or unfolds the scroll until he comes to the second seal, which upon breaking... More judgments are unleashed upon the inhabitants of the earth, and so on. Just so you understand, the seventh seal contains the seven trumpet judgments, and the seventh trumpet judgment contains the seven bowl judgments. So technically, the last seal contains all the remaining judgments that God will pour out upon the world. Now, that information will be important later on, so kind of hang on to it, okay? Verse 1 again. Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now, you would be amazed how many commentators, good, solid commentators, who interpret this rider to be Jesus Christ. Why? Well, he's riding a white horse. We all know the good guys ride the white horses, right? I mean, at least that's what the old black and white westerns taught us, right? I mean, it's a lot easier back then to pick out the good guys from the bad guys. Because in those movies, 
all the good guys wore white, white hats, white clothes, white horses. And all the bad guys wore the black hats, black clothes, rode the black horses, and so on. But, but that's all make-believe. Those movies were fun, but they were just make-believe. In real life, if I wanted to rob a bank back then, in Western days, uh, I would have put on a white hat, white clothes, and have gotten myself a white horse because, listen, that's what you do if you're a bad guy wanting to deceive people into thinking you're one of the good guys. In Matthew 7, Jesus warned us to beware of this very practice, how that Satan would dress his wolves in what? Sheep's clothing. In other words, he would try to make his bad guys look like good guys. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 14 and 15, that Satan, as the prince of darkness, would disguise himself as an angel of light to deceive and would direct his ministers, his servants, to do the same, deceiving people into thinking they were, listen, ministers of righteousness. And that's exactly what this writer in Revelation 6, verse 2 is. He's a deceiver. A false Christ and not the real Jesus Christ. How do we know that? How do we know that? Well, because first of all, he's wearing a crown. You say, well, so what? Jesus is seen wearing a crown in Revelation and other places. That's true. But the crown Jesus is seen wearing is a diadem. That's a Greek word for crown, but it's the crown of a king. This person, whoever he is, is wearing a crown, but the Greek is Stephanos, which was the crown of a conqueror. In Jesus' day, when the Roman government was in power, a general that came back from the battlefield victorious, conquering over the enemies of Rome, they would give him a victory parade. And they would put him in front, his soldiers would march behind him, and they would place on this conquering general's head a Stephanos, which was really nothing more than a laurel wreath. Maybe you've seen those, right? The laurel wreath. That was the crown of a conqueror. Uh, he was a conquering hero. And that's why they put on his head the Stephanos crown. Not the crown Jesus is seen wearing. This is a crown of a conqueror, all right? Secondly, we know this isn't Jesus because he's holding a bow. A bow. Whenever Jesus is seen in the book of Revelation holding a weapon, what is it? A sword. A sword. Besides, where is Jesus at this moment? Well, he's in heaven, right? Breaking the seals on this scroll, which begins to unleash God's judgments upon the earth. I mean, he doesn't break the first seal, drop the scroll, run down to the earth, and jump on a horse and become the first rider. <laughs> Guys, this rider is the first judgment of God upon the inhabitants of the earth. Don't miss this. Remember what they said of Jesus? We will not have this man reign over us. People that don't want Jesus as their king. God will send them a ruler that they desire. Saul, in, in, in the Old Testament, Israel got Saul. He wasn't the king God wanted, but he was the king the people wanted. And he was a disaster. And I think God lets us have the, the, the rulers that we think we want, 
as a people until they so messed things up were begging God to send us the leader he was. And that was David. But guys, Jesus Christ cannot be this rider because this rider is the first judgment of God and Jesus Christ is not a judgment. Listen, he is the judge. John 5.22, uh, 2 Timothy 4.1, just to name a couple of places in Scripture where Jesus Christ is called the judge of all the earth. And he, the true judge, doesn't come to the earth until the end of the great tribulation period. We see him returning to the earth in Revelation 19. Why don't you turn there? Revelation 19, let's pick it up in verse 11. John said, No, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. So the good guys do, do ride the white horses. But sometimes sort of the bad guys. you got to be careful. But we know this is the good guy. Now I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire. And on his heads were, his head was many crowns. Many diadems. Well, sure. He's not just a king. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. He had a name written that no one knew except, he, except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called, what? The Word of God. So who is this? Jesus. We're not guessing. It's obvious, right? Verse 14, And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen. We've already shown that this army coming back with Jesus to establish the kingdom is made up of the church and godly angels. The armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So guys, in Revelation 19, we see the coming of Jesus to the earth, who of course is the true Christ, the true Christ. This character we see in Revelation 6 verse 2 is a false Christ. In fact, he is the ultimate false Christ known as the Antichrist, the Antichrist who appears on the world stage initially as a good guy. And I believe that's why the Holy Spirit pictures him riding a white horse. All right, He's presenting himself to the world as a good guy until eventually he proves himself to be, listen, the ultimate bad guy. The Bible tells us he will come on the world scene initially as a man of peace who will be the consummate politician and policymaker. Furthermore, the Bible teaches he will rise to power as the leader of a one-world government, I believe, and I have no scriptural proof of this, but it's my conviction, that he will rise to power. I think he's alive right now. 
but he's not going to rise to power until the church is out of here because he's the first judgment of the tribulation period. And the, the word says very clearly that God has not appointed us who are redeemed, saved, to judgment. So when God pours his judgments out upon this world, the church can't be here. God will not punish the righteous with the wicked. So he evacuates his church off the earth. And the first judgment is this leader. He's the guy the world wants. He's the perfect worldly leader. The very embodiment of everything they prize. Forget the heart. The world doesn't look at leaders with regard to their heart. They look at the outward appearance, like Israel did with Saul. Tall, dark, and handsome, right? Does he look good in front of a camera? That's all we care about. Does he talk good, you know? More than that, will he put money in my pocket? That kind of thing. Um, but I believe that after the church is raptured, this guy will rise to power quickly and become the leader of the one world government. I don't think it's going to take months, years. The rapture is going to happen. You say, well, how long between the time the rapture happens and this guy rises to power as a world leader? I don't know. I don't think it's probably going to be hours, but who knows? Probably days, maybe a few months, but I think it's sooner rather than later. That's my conviction. So he's going to, you know, Rise to power quickly after the rapture of the church. Um, he will probably come on the scene when the world is going through some kind of global crisis, maybe a limited nuclear war or total financial collapse of the world banking system. Listen, not to mention, not to mention the chaos and panic caused by the disappearance of millions and millions of people all over the world in the rapture, because the world doesn't know it's the rapture. They don't know what's going on. There's some interesting things I've read uh, that are going to be the world's explanation. We'll get to some of those down the road. Interesting, some of the, uh, some of the um, uh, explanations the world is going to have for how all these people disappeared. Okay? Interesting. So they've already got, you know, the devil's already got in place the explanations and, and so on. But, then, but so quickly the Antichrist will rise to quiet all fears. Okay? And, uh, hey, we don't know what happened to those folks. But we know this. We're going to get through this together, and we're going to move forward. We have to unite. Yeah, okay. Get thee behind me, Satan, right? <laughs> but um, the world is going to be in some kind of chaos. And here this guy's going to come on the scene with his supernatural brilliance, political savvy, and satanic power. He will save the world, quote-unquote, right? By solving the world's problems, bringing nations together. And then the process will usher in a new era of global peace and prosperity. The world is going to say, he's here, our Messiah. It's the, it's the dawning of the age of Aquarius. They've been singing about that since the 60s. This is the dawning of the age of Okay, well, here it is. Here it is. Maitreya Bodhi, he's here. The latest reincarnation of the Christ Spirit. Jesus Christ was the last reincarnation of the Christ Spirit for the Piscean Age. But now we have the latest reincarnation of the Christ Spirit for the New Age, the Age of Aquarius. Oh, the world's ready. The world's ready. 
However, Paul the Apostle tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 3, when the people of this world say, Ah, peace and safety, utopia, then sudden destruction will come upon them like labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. We'll talk about that. We see him, the Antichrist, pictured here, pictured here carrying what? A bow. The fact that he isn't seen carrying any arrows, well, that could reinforce the idea that he doesn't initially come as a man of war. He initially comes as a man of peace. Listen, thrust into power by the leaders of this world who see him as a Messiah-like figure. Many, we'll see this next week, many will actually think he is the Messiah. But I think most of the world is going to think, well, he is a Messiah-like leader and savior of mankind. It isn't until the midpoint of the tribulation period that he becomes a bloodthirsty military tyrant, killing anyone who gets in his way or refuses to bow to him as God. However, guys, the bow doesn't have to represent a weapon. It could represent, listen, a covenant. You know, the first time the word bow appears in the Bible, it's associated with a covenant? I'll read it to you out of the King James Version, because it's a little clearer, where God said, I set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And he's speaking, the Lord's speaking of the Noahic covenant. This is after the flood, and God put a rainbow in the clouds, and that bow became God's um, proof, it's his guarantee to the world that he would never again destroy the, the world, the earth, with a flood. Well, Peter comes on the scene in Second Peter and tells us, don't get too excited because there's some fine print. The next time he destroys the, the world will be with fire. Uh, but no, he won't destroy it again with a flood. All right. But, but the very first time in the Bible the word bow appears, it's connected to a covenant. That's interesting. Because when the Bible talks about the Antichrist coming in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, it associates him with a covenant. I'll read it to you. Daniel 9, 27. Then he, Antichrist, shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. Now, we'll talk about this in a moment. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. Folks, as we come to Revelation chapter 6 through 19, we come to a period of time that the Bible has more to say about than any other period in human history. It's often referred to as the 70th week of Daniel, the tribulation period. Uh, 1260 days a time times and half a time but also it's referred to in jeremiah 30 verse 7 as the time of jacob's trouble jacob being israel it's called the time of jacob's trouble because it will be a time when satan will be targeting targeting the jewish people in particular for destruction reread this week again matthew 24 but see Israel in view, not the church. When Christians read Matthew 24 and stuff the church into it, they come away with 
wrong conclusions and wrong applications. Israel is in view there. We'll see that in a moment, okay? But this seven-year period, and by the way, it's the last seven years of human history as we will ever know it, officially begins when the Antichrist signs a peace treaty with the nation of Israel. Many Christians believe the uh, tribulation period begins when the rapture takes place. That is incorrect. The seven-year period of time we call the tribulation period officially begins when the Antichrist signs a peace treaty with the nation of Israel and will conclude, of course, with Jesus Christ returning to the earth to establish his kingdom. Now, I believe that when the Antichrist signs this peace treaty with Israel, I believe it's going to include a provision for them to rebuild their temple on the Temple Mount. We'll have a whole lot more to say about this in Revelation 11, where John sees the rebuilt temple. And so it's going to happen, okay? But we'll have more to say about that. I believe that this treaty is going to allow Israel to rebuild their temple on the Temple Mount. This, this leader is going to have to be an incredible um, politician, uh, ambassador, whatever you want to call him, deal maker and so on, to, uh, to get the Muslims who control the Temple Mount to allow the Jews to rebuild their temple on that very Temple Mount. We'll talk about that more when we get to chapter 11. The prophecy in Daniel 9, which Jesus alludes to in Matthew 24, verse 15, is important. Now, we just read... Daniel 9, verse 27. Uh, but the whole prophecy of Daniel 9, which Jesus again alludes to in Matthew 24, verse 15, is important because it gives us critical information concerning the coming of the Antichrist onto the world scene. Isn't that what we're studying in Revelation 6, verses 1 and 2? The coming of the Antichrist onto the world scene. Well, Daniel gives us a whole lot more insight in Daniel 9. Please turn there. Please turn there. Listen, if the bow spoken of in Revelation 6, verse 2, as seen in the hand of the Antichrist when he comes, is in fact a covenant, it would coincide with the prophecy in the book of Daniel, chapter 9. Now, as you turn there, remember that Daniel 9 starts out with Daniel in Babylonian captivity, having read the scroll of the prophet Jeremiah, where Jeremiah had prophesied that the captivity would last 70 years. Daniel knew when the, captivity, when the captivity began, and so adding 70 years onto that date, he realizes there's only about three years left before it would be over and the children of Israel would be allowed to go home. Now, Daniel knows he's too old to go with him, to go with his people back to Israel. I mean, he's... Uh, like late 80s, maybe early 90s. He's, he's too old to make the He knows that. He knows that. But he becomes very burdened to know what will happen to his people once they return back to their land. Or in other words, what does the future hold for the people of God? That's what's burdening him. 
And so because of his concern for his people, he begins to pray. That's what Daniel 9, verses 3 to 19 is all about. And in response to his prayer, God sent the angel Gabriel to him to give him one of the greatest prophecies in the Bible dealing with the future of the Jewish people. But guys, it impacts the whole world, really. Daniel 9, verse 24. Gabriel says to Daniel, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. Let me stop there. The Hebrew is literally 70 sevens. The Hebrew is shabuim, shabuim, are determined for your people, the Jews, and for your holy city, of course, Jerusalem. The Hebrew word for seven could mean either seven days or seven years depending on the context. And here in this passage, the context is clearly referring to 77-year periods of time. So Gabriel is telling Daniel that God has determined, has set aside 77-year periods, 490 years of 360 days each. That was a biblical prophetic year for a lot of reasons, okay? But 77-year periods, 490 years consisting of 360 days each year for a total of 173,880 days to deal with the Jewish people and the city of Jerusalem. God has set aside those years to deal pretty much exclusively with the nation of Israel. I'm not saying God didn't do anything among other nations during this time, but Israel was the focus. Israel was the focus. We are told in verse 24 that the purpose of these 490 years will be to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Guys, remember that Daniel's prayer was out of concern for his people because they were being punished for their national sins, which was why they were taken to Babylon as captives in the first place. And Daniel was burdened to know if his people had learned their lesson through the captivity. Or, once they returned to the land of promise, would they continue in their sins and be judged by God once again? And if they did return to their same old rebellion, would it mean that the promises God gave to Israel of a coming Messiah and kingdom would be withdrawn? See, Daniel was burdened. He wasn't burdened for himself. He was an old man. He didn't have much time left to live. He was burdened for his people going forward. I mean, he was, Lord, has my people, have they learned their lesson? The captivity is going to be over soon. And they're going to go back to the land of promise, Israel. Are they going to get involved once again in the same sins that caused you to judge them and take them out of the land for these 70 years? He's burdened. And if they do, does that mean your promise of a kingdom in Messiah that would reign over that kingdom, is is that all going to go away? Gabriel's prophecy in these verses, Daniel 9, 24 through 27, gives the answer to that. Messiah will come. 
and the kingdom will be established. In fact, Gabriel now goes on to tell Daniel, listen, the exact day when Messiah would present himself to the nation of Israel as their king. Verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and, and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince comes, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. To understand this prophecy where God through the angel Gabriel tells Daniel the exact day Messiah would come, you have to go and listen to our Daniel study because I don't have time to get into all of that again tonight. Okay, But Daniel 9 verse 26 does tell us something shocking, especially if you're a Jewish person reading this. Daniel 9, verse 26, tells us that when Messiah, remember we're talking about Israel's king, when he does finally come, he would not reign, but instead would be killed. Verse 26, And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, listen, but not for himself. In other words, after the 7 weeks and 62 weeks, or in other words, after the 69 consecutive seven-year periods, Messiah would come, but he would be then cut off. The Hebrew word means to be executed for a capital offense. But not for himself, Gabriel quickly adds in the prophecy. In other words, he would be executed for a capital crime, but he would be innocent of the charges. And you can reread Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6 again. So Daniel 9.26, he said, And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Let me stop there. The people and the prince who is to come, who destroys the city of Jerusalem and the temple, which is referred to as the sanctuary, is a reference to the Roman general Titus, Titus Vespasian and his troops, who destroyed Jerusalem and the temple in 70 A.D. But as we have said many times before, with prophecy, there is often a short-term partial fulfillment and then a long-term ultimate fulfillment. The short-term partial fulfillment of verse 26 is the Roman general Titus. Jesus prophesied about Titus' coming and what the Romans would do to Jerusalem and the temple. In Luke chapter 21, verses 20 and 24, Jesus himself prophesies about what was going to happen, we know, in 70 A.D. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near, verse 24, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations, the Jewish people now, and Jerusalem will, Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. That was the shorter term um, partial fulfillment. Let me read Daniel 9.26 again. Pick it up in the middle of verse 26. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood, and till the end of the war desolations are determined. 
The phrase, the end of it shall be with a flood, guys, describes the way Jerusalem was finally destroyed by the Roman army sweeping over the city like a flood, just overwhelming it. So as I said, the short-term partial fulfillment of verse 26 of Daniel 9 is General Titus and the Roman army. But the long-term ultimate fulfillment of Daniel 9.26, listen, is the Antichrist and his armies. That last phrase, till the end of the war, listen, desolations are determined, I believe is a reference to the time the Antichrist sets up his image in the Holy of Holies of the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem and desolates, or in other words, desecrates it, making it unusable for the worship of God or as Jesus called it in Matthew 24, verse 15, he called it the abomination of desolation. From that time till the end of the war, see it there? The phrase till the end of the war is a reference to when Jesus returns and defeats the Antichrist in battle, ending the war of rebellion the Antichrist is waging against the true and living God and his son Jesus Christ, we can read about that in Revelation 19, verses 1 to 16. Until that time, the temple will continue to be desolate until Jesus returns, at which time the kingdom is established, the millennial temple is erected, and the worship of the true and living God in Jerusalem has begun once again. Now, guys, verse 27 of Daniel 9 focuses on the Antichrist exclusively. Exclusively. We read, then, he shall confirm a covenant with many, listen, for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. Hang in there, we'll break it down. Okay. Then he, speaking of the Antichrist, shall confirm a covenant with many, yes, the whole nation of Israel, for one week. Again, uh, in the Hebrew, that one week signifies one seven-year period. The Hebrew word for covenant can be translated treaty. Treaty. Daniel 9.27 tells us that when the Antichrist signs a peace treaty with Israel, the seven-year tribulation period, again, which it refers to as one week, will officially begin and will then culminate with, with the return of Jesus Christ to the earth to establish his kingdom. We read, then, he shall confirm a covenant with many, for one week. But in the middle of the week, that would be the midpoint of the seven-year tribulation period. He shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. He will bring an end to the worship of the true God. The Jews, of course, worship him with sacrifice and offerings. Now, let me just pencil in what's going on. He comes on the scene, signs this covenant or this treaty of Israel. That begins the officially the seven-year tribulation period. Things go pretty well for the first three and a half years. Israel even thinks he's their Messiah, right? Jesus said, I've come in my Father's name. Me you did not receive as your Messiah. Another will come in his own name. Him you will receive. Speaking of the Antichrist, right? 
the, the Jews initially believed this guy is their Messiah, their true Messiah. Why? Because he brings peace and he's worked it out where through a treaty they can rebuild their temple. He's got to be our Messiah, right? Temple is rebuilt. The offerings and daily sacrifices are reinstituted. And the Jews are worshiping God in their newly rebuilt temple. That is until the midpoint of the tribulation period. Where we pick it up, um, where it says again, He shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And uh, I'll have you turn to Matthew 24. I'll have you turn to several of these scriptures. So Matthew 24, verse 15. Jesus said, Therefore when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. You've got to know this. Then let those who are, in, who are in Judea flee to the mountains. You can read the rest of that on your own. At the midpoint of the last seven years, this man goes into the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, puts up his image in the Holy of Holies, stops the worship to the true and living God, and demands not to be worshipped as God. Revelation 12, verse 6. Remember how Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 16, when you see that happen, Jewish people, flee to the mountains, flee into the wilderness. Well, Revelation 12, verse 6 says, then the woman, now as we're going to see, that's a reference to Israel. The woman represents Israel. So then Israel fled into the wilderness where this woman who represents Israel, where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. That's the last three and a half years of the seven. We believe it's talking about how Israel will flee down to the rock city of Petra and take refuge. We'll have a lot more to say about that when we come to chapter 12. 2 Thessalonians 2. Second Thessalonians 2, starting with verse 3. Now Paul is talking about this very thing. Okay? He said, Let no one deceive you by any means. For that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin, the Antichrist, is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worship so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Revelation 13, one more. And what happens to those who refuse to worship this antichrist as God? Revelation 13, pick it up in verse 14. And he deceives those. This is talking about the false prophet, his sidekick. Okay, But he, the false prophet, deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs. This guy has supernatural power too. The antichrist does as well. But... Uh, he, the false prophet, deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs, those miracles which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, and that's the Antichrist, okay? They're working together. Telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast 
who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So the Antichrist at one point starts a brand new religion where he's God. And if you don't like it, too bad. As those who refuse to worship him will be killed. Again, Daniel 9, the beginning part of verse 27. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate. One author comments, he said, and I quote, Abominations translates an ancient Hebrew word, which I cannot pronounce, so why bother, <laughs> that is connected to horrific idolatry. And then he gives several scriptures uh, where that word is used. Okay? The idea is that the coming prince, Antichrist, breaks the covenant and brings an end to sacrifice and offering by desecrating the holy of holies of the temple with a horrific idolatry, end quote. Well, sure, he puts his own image in there and demands to be worshipped as God. The end of verse 27 of Daniel 9, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. This breaking of the covenant by the Antichrist that he made with Israel and the abomination of desolation he brings into the Holy of Holies, listen, we're being told right here, has a promised consummation or conclusion. When Jesus returns, he will bring to an end all the abominations of the Antichrist and complete everything described in Daniel 9, verse 24. Once again, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. When Jesus returns, everything God has promised, everything that had been corrupted by sin, is going to be put right, is going to be made right. But when Jesus returns, his first order of business will be to judge the Antichrist. Daniel 7, verse 11. As Daniel, God is giving Daniel a vision of what we're talking about. And the destruction of the Antichrist, we know when Jesus returns to establish his kingdom. Daniel said, Daniel 7, verse 11, I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. A little side note. The name that we come, or the title that pretty much all Christians have come to associate this world leader with is the term Antichrist, right? Antichrist. John the Apostle talks about the spirit of Antichrist. Many Antichrists already going out into the world. It's interesting that the person we call the Antichrist is never actually called the Antichrist in the Bible. Well, what is he called? He called a little horn, a big mouth. I mean, he's called a lot. He goes by like 33 different names. But Antichrist isn't one of them. That's okay, though. Uh, because, you know, and, and, and I think I've mentioned this before, but, but let me just say it again. I'll probably mention it next week, too. But 
when we hear the word anti-Christ, the word anti in our mind means against, right? So we think this guy is against Christ, or in other words, he's against religion. That's not true. The devil is not against religion. He's only against true religion, Christianity. He doesn't care if people of the world worship Buddha or Confucius or Muhammad or whoever they want to worship, the, the earth, Gaia, it doesn't matter. As long as they're worshiping a false god, which will, will not save them, and they're going to go to hell. Could care less. Satan does some of his best work through religion. Okay? But in the Greek, the word anti does not, does not have to mean against. It's a Greek word, a Greek prefix that could also mean in place of. This guy is the Antichrist in the sense of that he's putting himself in place of, he's, a, he's the Christ, he's the Messiah, but he is putting himself in the place of the true Messiah, the true Christ, right? Uh, Christ means anointed one. Uh, same thing as Messiah, Mashiach in the Hebrew. Same thing, anointed one. Christos in the Greek, Mashiach in the Hebrew, the anointed one. It's a term that the Bible gives to the king coming back to establish the kingdom, Jesus Christ. Satan knows the scriptures. He tries to counterfeit this by feeding the world a false Christ, one that puts himself in the place of the true Christ. But Daniel 7, verse 11, Daniel said, I watched them because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking, stand I, Christ, I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. Couple that with Revelation 19, and we'll close. When Jesus returns, the first person he's going to deal with is the Antichrist. Revelation 19, verse 20. Then the beast was captured. And with him the false prophet. Now, again, please bear with me. Because I say this a lot, okay? But I, it, it's burned in my mind, this image, okay? We know from Scripture that, and the Bible tells us this very clearly, that from the time the Antichrist sets up his image in the Holy of Holies, 1260 days will pass, and then Jesus will come. So the devil knows that the exact day. Jesus is going to return to establish his kingdom. So he's got the Antichrist all hepped up and charged up because after all, the devil was able to bring the Antichrist back to life when somebody tried to kill this guy, right? And he looked like he was dead. Three days later, he resurrects. Well, he didn't really resurrect. Satan doesn't have the power of life and death. Only God does. But he's a counterfeiter, and he's a good counterfeiter. And he doesn't have to really raise somebody from the dead if he can get people to think a person is dead, which he then kind of revives, brings back to life, right? So the, the devil has got the Antichrist, and of course all the Antichrist followers thinking that they can defeat Jesus, right? Revelation, I think, 13, after this guy rises from the dead, ooh, wow, they were enamored, now they worship him. Who is like the beast? Who was able to make war with him? Nobody can defeat him. Or I'm on his side. We're going to go for it, right? So here they are. They know Je the day Jesus is coming back, 1260 days after the Antichrist sets up his image in the Holy of Holies, right? 
So here they are in the Valley of Megiddo. The Bible talks about this. I don't know how many thousands and thousands and maybe hundreds of thousands of people following the Antichrist, his army, right? And they are decked out with the finest weaponry. I'm talking about surface-to-air missiles and, you know, 50 caliber sniper rifles and Apache helicopters, right? And here they are. They're ready to do battle. But Jesus, he's not going to rule over us. We'll take him on. The, we got the beast on our side. The Antichrist, nobody can beat him. And here comes Jesus breaking through the clouds. I imagine it's going to be a very dark, depressing day. You know, clouds and darkness, right? And all of a sudden, the clouds part, and here comes Jesus Christ like a sun, radiating with glory. And behind him, riding a white horse behind him, uh, his church and all the holy angels coming to the earth. I let them have it. Well, it doesn't even really take place. The Lord just speaks the word and the armies of the Antichrist are vaporized. Their blood runs throughout the valley of Megiddo for 200 miles. And then you know what it says he does? Then the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped the image. And these two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. So here comes the Lord Jesus. He comes back, right? This is the one who spoke a word in the universe. The whole universe came into existence. And these puny men think they're going to defeat. That's how deceived people get. You think Jesus even gives them the time of day? He doesn't square off against them. Just takes two little, you know, takes them by the collar, whip, throws them right into the lake of fire. Not even a battle. There's no battle. And he establishes his kingdom. And we will continue looking at, got two verses, all right? I didn't let you down. We got into chapter six, the first seal, right? Spent a little extra time because this first seal deals with the Antichrist coming. He's very important to the world scene before Jesus returns. So we'll look at the second seal, God willing, next week. Father, we thank you. For your word, we thank you, Lord, that you are victorious. And because we are in you, we are victorious. We're not working towards victory, Lord Jesus. You've won the victory. We're not working towards victory in our own lives. We're working from it. Give us grace to embrace our heritage. Um, And that is that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We don't have to be in bondage to alcohol, tobacco, pornography, uh, gambling, drugs. We are victorious if we will look to you to live your life through us and give us the victory you've already won at Calvary's cross and three days later having risen from the dead. We just thank you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.